0: A number of years ago, in 2015, Ashley Madison was at the height of its popularity. This was a website that encouraged people to have affairs. They boasted some 39 million users in 50 different countries, and according to one analytics provider, 124 million people visited this site each and every month. And in July 15th of that year, 2015, Some hackers broke into the site and stole all the user information, names, addresses, credit cards, and threatened to release it if the site was not brought down. And the site didn't come down. And so just a short while later, they released a handful of names and a month later released to the public the 39 million registered users of this website. The week following saw a number of apologies being issued by political figures, by pastors. We saw divorces being filed and even suicides, according to the Toronto Police, where Ashley Madison is is stationed. Their their tagline is, life is short, have an affair. And it's really tragic to hear what has happened to, to so many people in the wake of this. But what I want us to see just with this example is that there are lots of voices out there telling you how you ought to think about this issue of love, sexuality, and the body. This is just one of them. And we can multiply these examples over and over again. But what I want us to ask today is this question. How should we live in a highly sexualized world where everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes? How should we live in the kind of world and atmosphere that we find ourselves breathing in, where messages come to us even when we're not wanting them, telling you how you ought to live with this issue. Well, we're going to call our study today Sexual Holiness. We're going to be looking at some specific teachings from the Apostle Paul. He was the hand-picked ambassador of Jesus Christ uh, to the Roman Empire, and he's writing to a group of Christians living in this ancient city of Thessalonica. And they, like us, were bombarded with messages left and right about how they ought to live and conduct themselves in the area of love, sexuality, and the body. So we're going to give some consideration to his teaching as he seeks to put into practice for these Thessalonian believers the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pause for a moment and ask the Lord to teach us to open up our hearts to receive the things that he wants us to have this day. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together and to open up these ancient scriptures and to look at this one document in particular written by Jesus' hand-picked ambassador, the Apostle Paul, as he seeks to apply the teachings of Jesus to these believers living in this ancient city where they were bombarded by so many different messages, just like we are. Give us ears to hear his counsel to them so that we, in turn, might know how to navigate the waters of our culture and how to live before you. Lord, we pray that you would bring conviction where there needs to be conviction, that you would bring hope where there needs to be hope, but that you would root each and every one of us in the ways of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to be in chapter 4, but I want to just give you a bit of context uh, from what the Apostle Paul says to these new followers of Jesus. And so, in the very first chapter, he says this to them. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Then in chapter two, he said this, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We exhorted you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The word of God is at work in you, believers. And then in chapter three, right before he gives the instructions we're going to look at, he says this to them. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul has reminded them that the gospel has come to them in great power, that they were converted to God. They turned from living for themselves and worshiping anything and everything to worshiping God. And he said, this is because the word of God is at work in you who believe. And then he says, look, what I want to see in your life is that you increase in love more and more, just as you are doing, so that God may establish your hearts blameless before him. So that's where Paul is, has come, and that's where he's going with these early disciples of Jesus. And so what he tells them next is, is really the climax of his letter. And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, these words, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us How you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So he tells them, look, you have received from us how you ought to live. As a follower of Jesus, there is a a path to walk. There's a way to live. And in this way is a way that pleases God. And he says, you know the instructions that we gave to you. And he says this in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that word sanctification is a big word. It essentially means holiness. In fact, it can be translated holiness. And I don't know how that word hits you, holiness. It seems to me that in our culture, it's it's just taken on such a negative connotation. A person who is holy is someone who is holier than thou, self-righteous. And that's not at all what the Apostle Paul has in mind. He's just told them that he wants to see them established in their hearts in holiness. And so if that holiness word, sanctification, is a stumbling block for you, just think in terms of Christ-likeness. He wants them to become more like Christ. And that helps me when I hear that word sanctification or that word holiness. It just means to become more like Jesus. He was the greatest person who ever lived. And so he wants them to become more like him. And so he says to them, this is the will of God, your sanctification." that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the first of three key ways that he wants to tell them that they can live before God in a way that is pleasing to him. And the first one he says is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this is a radical statement in that day. There is no one besides the Jews and the Christians who are telling the culture that you should abstain from sexual immorality. In fact, if you lived in the Roman Empire, and especially if you were a man, it was expected that you engage in sexual immorality. My wife and I lived in Peru, and our family, for a couple of years, and it was just expected that men would have flings on the side. It was in very, in very many ways a matriarchal culture, and everyone respected the mother, but it was just expected of the men that they would not be sexually faithful to their wives. In the same way in the ancient world, to abstain from sexual immorality, I mean, what are you crazy? I mean, who does something like that? But Paul says, this is how you as a follower of Jesus can walk and please God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so this word sexual immorality is almost um, just it's a key term that, that covers a lot of different areas but it basically refers to any sexual activity outside the God-ordained covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. So if you can imagine any activity outside of that covenant of marriage, that's what this word means. That's the word that Jesus used over and over again. And he would teach crowds about this issue. Old and young, rich and poor, male and female. This was an important issue. And let's just make this point as we consider what is being said here. God is not against sex precisely because he created it. It was his idea to begin with. He's the one who designed our bodies. But what our creator is against is the abuse and the misuse of sex. This is important. So when Paul tells them that they ought to avoid sexual immorality... He's telling them of a pathway they can walk to please God. Let me just say, there's an objection I know in our culture that just says Christians are always against people having fun. And so just to draw this line arbitrarily between people who are married and people who are not is wrong. And it's interesting that there's a standard that they're assuming that that would be wrong. But let me just say this. Everyone, no matter what they believe, has a line in which they say, this is moral and this is immoral. If we've learned anything over the last couple years, especially with the Me Too movement, this movement that that sought to give voice to those people who've been manipulated through the promise of jobs or, or whatever, who were sexually harassed, that that is a wrong thing to do to people. So everyone has a line somewhere that they draw. And so Paul, writing to the Ephesians, basically echoed this teaching when he said... But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Here he tells them, like he's telling the Thessalonican believers, that there must not even be a hint of sexual morality among the followers of Jesus because this is improper for God's holy people. So the first point that Paul makes in writing to these Thessalonian believers is that they ought to avoid sexual immorality. This is one of the ways that they can live to please God. But he has a second instruction as well. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Here the Apostle Paul seems to believe that Christians, those who follow Jesus, ought to be able to control themselves that they can say no to certain urges of the body and so he says you ought to know how to control your own body in holiness and in honor when paul wrote to christians living in corinth he gave them some similar teaching he said the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body He tells them God didn't give you a body so that you can engage in sexual immorality. He gave you a body to honor him. And so the idea behind this is that we are saying to the Lord, your wish is my command. What you want me to do with my body, what you want me to do with my heart, what you want me to do with my soul, that's what I want to do. Paul goes on in those instructions to the Corinthians and says, flee from sexual immorality. Notice what the assumption is, that there would be opportunities in their culture to engage in sexual immorality, and there were. The local temple that the non-Christians worshipped at had temple prostitution, This is part of the culture. You went to worship the local deity, pay tribute to the emperor, you engaged in sexual morality. So he tells them that no matter what's going on in the culture, flee from sexual immorality, Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul tells these Corinthian believers, as he's telling the Thessalonian believers, that you can honor God with the way you use your body. And yes, there will be temptations to misuse it. But the way to please God is to know how to control your body in honor. And so when he says, each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, he contrasts it now with those around them in the culture. In verse 5 he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he brings up this issue of lust. And let's just define lust like this. Lust is actively desiring, craving, wanting, a longing for what God has forbidden. Paul will tell the Ephesians these words. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles was just a, a shorthand way of talking about the people out there who do not follow after God. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Did you catch that? They've given themselves over. They're they're serving. And what they get is a continual lust for more. So when Christ is not enthroned in our lives, and instead we enthrone lust, we say to lust, your wish is my command. But if you notice what the Apostle Paul said, the payout, what lust does in terms of rewarding you for your faithful service to it, is a continual lust for more. It will never be enough. One pursuit of sexual immorality Leaves you wanting more sexual immorality. So in other words, lust rewards your faithfulness by enslaving you to lust. But Paul is hopeful for these Thessalonian believers. He's reminded them that the Word of God is at work in you. You may have various desires that you need to learn to control, but he's confident they can do that because the word of God is at work in them. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to this man named Wesley Hill. He's an associate professor of New Testament at Western Theological Seminary. And he has a book called Washed and Waiting. And what you need to know about Wesley Hill is he is a Christian, and he readily admits that he has always struggled with same-sex attraction. But as he studied the scriptures, he came to the conclusion that this is not an avenue that he can pursue to please God in. And so he recognized that his option is to remain abstinent, to seek to serve the Lord in faithfulness as a single person. And so in this book, Wash and Waiting, he talks about his own story and how he wrestled with this issue and how he came to this place of faithfulness in walking before the Lord. And this is what he says. He says the gospel resists the fallen inclinations of Christian believers. When we engage with God in Christ and take seriously the commands for purity that flow from the gospel, we always find our sinful dreams and desires challenged. From God's perspective, our sinful inclinations are like the craving for salt of a person who is dying of thirst. That's such a powerful image, in my mind at least. A person who is dying of thirst, the last thing they need is salt. Because that will only make them more thirsty. And so if we look at our lives and we say at some level in our life, God, I can't live without lust. We're not understanding that very thing is what will be our undoing. So here's another key thought. Jesus has come to free us from the desires that distort and enslave our humanity. Therefore, we must believe that Jesus is not against our humanity, but for it. And this is what the Apostle Paul is working for in the life of these Thessalonians, these Corinthians, these Ephesians. And if we have ears to hear, we can hear that's what he's working for in our life as well. He wants us to be free. And so that's the second point that he brings up. The first one was avoid sexual immorality. The second one was to honor God with your bodies. These are two sure ways that we can please God. But he brings up a third one as well, and it's found in verse 6. He says that no one transgress or wrong his brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand, and and solely, that should be solemnly, uh, warns you. No one transgress a brother or sister. What does that mean? To transgress something is to cross a boundary. So Paul is saying, if you want to live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God, you do not cross these boundaries. Even if it can be done in secret, even if the person is willing You don't cross those boundaries, because when you do so, you wrong that person. Let's be clear. To engage in sexual immorality is to engage in sexual exploitation, even if both parties are willing. At its heart, sexual immorality is a selfish violation of love. Let me remind you of what Paul says elsewhere. In Romans, he says, love does no wrong to his neighbor. 1 Corinthians 13, love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. To not honor someone else, and their bodily integrity. To take advantage of someone, to want to use something of theirs for your own personal pleasure, is a violation of love. And remember, Paul is aiming at the growth of love in these followers of Jesus, both for one another and for everyone. And so he tells them that they should not transgress the boundaries of another individual and wrong them. So those are the three ways that he brings up here. Three ways you can live to please God. One is avoid sexual immorality. Two, honor God with your bodies. And three, respect the dignity of others. And then he says this in verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. To these people who have responded to the good news of Jesus and have trusted in him, believed in him, given their life to him, he tells them, remember, God has not called you to impurity, but he has called you in holiness. He has not called you for sexual morality; He has called you for sexual holiness. Christopher Yuan, in his book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, a book I would commend to you, said this, the truth is that God's standard for everyone is holy sexuality, chastity in singleness, and faithfulness in marriage. From Genesis to Revelation, in the entirety of the biblical witness, only two paths align with God's standard for sexual expression. If you're single, be sexually abstinent while fleeing lustful desires. And if you're married, be sexually and emotionally faithful to your spouse while also fleeing lustful desires. And this is how Paul signs off this section. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this... Disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We can individually disregard uh, God's instructions on this area of our life. We can listen to teachers who will tell us to disregard God's instructions on this. We can listen to our culture who says things like, Life is short, have an affair. It's just one look, it won't hurt anyone. As long as two consenting adults agree, then it's no problem. Paul says, whoever disregards this, disregards man, but God, um, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I'm sorry, I messed that up. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards man, but God who... I have this translator wrong here. I'm sorry, yes. Okay, I see it. Therefore, whoever... This is just a test to see if you're paying attention. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And let me just say this, my friends. We are living in a time where churches... Themselves, oftentimes encourage people to follow their hearts and just to do whatever they want. This is actually not something new. This has happened throughout history. In fact, in the very first century, there is counsel from the Lord Jesus to a church living in Asia Minor. It's found in the book of Revelation. I just read this this last week. Jesus comes to the church in Thyatira, and he commends them, and then he gives them some correction. He says, I know your works Here's a church in the first century in this city of Thyatira who was known for a lot of good things. No doubt they were serving the poor. No doubt they were good at their jobs and, and they just were good neighbors in general. But Jesus says, I have this against you. You're tolerating someone. And he uses the name Jezebel. I don't know if that's the real name or it's probably more a, a stereotype off the, the uh, king's wife in the Old Testament who led Israel astray. She calls herself a prophetess in this church. And what is she doing? She is teaching and seducing my servants. Jesus says she is teaching my servants. She's seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Paul would tell the Ephesians, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and God. These are strong words, but Paul wants to get their attention. He says, look, if you persist in something like this, that shows the true loyalty of your heart. And the true loyalty of your heart is to be a sexually immoral person. That's showing you who you truly serve. And so, the coming kingdom is a kingdom for those who love Jesus, want to walk in Jesus' way. And so... Let me summarize our study so far. Followers of Jesus are called to sexual holiness in mind, heart, and body. This is God's will for us. Let me just give us uh, 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 three points of application. The first one that's desperately needed for all of us is this. Let's embrace the healing of the gospel of Jesus. There's not one of us, including the pastor standing before you, who is not, at least in mind, if not heart and action, engaged in sexual morality. And so I'm sure that for many of us, our conscience is bothering us. Well, we prayed early in the service, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. It's something that it plagues us. And let me just say, we need to understand that Christ has come exactly for people like us, for people who've messed up, for people who find themselves battling desires that they may not want, for those of us who sometimes have have engaged in sexually immoral activities. Christ came for people like us. There's this beautiful passage in the Gospel of Luke where it's told in chapter 15 that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, these religious leaders were sneering at Jesus, and they thought it was just scandalous that Jesus would welcome sinners. And let me just say, the word sinners, in a lot of places in the gospel, is, is code word for sexually immoral people. Oftentimes, used to describe prostitutes. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let me just say, if, if, if you feel guilt over this issue. If your conscience is bothering you, you need to know that Jesus receives people like you, and he desires fellowship with people just like you. I loved what Jared Ayers, a pastor in Philadelphia Liberty Church, said. He says, Jesus stubbornly befriended, welcomed, and embraced sexual sinners and misfits and outsiders and outcasts, people like you and me. There is no scar, or stain that is in too deep for the cleansing embrace and grace of Jesus. You are Jesus' kind of people. Jesus didn't come for the pure. He came for the impure. He didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. He didn't come for those who have a perfect track record in this area of their life, but those who have failed miserably. You're a Jesus kind of people. You're the exact kind of people that he wants to draw into relationship with him. The gospel tells us that, but the book of Romans tells us, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. When we trust in Jesus and what he did on that cross when he took the sins of the world upon himself, we are brought into a state of salvation with God, reconciliation with God. But let me tell you also, my friends, that same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that empowers us. To actually be able to live the kind of life that God calls us to. So that when we see what Christ did for us, the cry of our heart becomes, Lord, your wish is my command. I want to follow you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And so I was having a conversation with uh, some young men this last week, and I said one of the things I try to do as daily practice in my own life is in the morning to offer myself to the Lord. My heart, my affections, my mind, my thoughts, my actions, the words I speak, and say something like this, Lord, I give my allegiance in heart, mind, and body to you. What is that doing? It's doing what Peter tells us in 1 Peter, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. So my friends, let that healing grace and mercy of the gospel wash over you in this moment. When you believe in Jesus, you're no longer defined by your sin, but you're defined by him and all his righteousness and all his beauty and all his perfection. And my friends, some of you need to live into this. You know it intellectually in your head. You could get up here and say the exact same thing that I'm saying, but you're not believing it with your heart and with your soul. You're allowing your mistakes and your sins and your past to define you rather than Jesus. And so that's the first point of application. Let's let the gospel do its work in us. But here's the second point of application. Let's strive to honor the dignity of other people. That's what this whole instruction of the Apostle Paul is aimed at, that we would grow in love for others. And at the core of that is striving to honor the dignity of other people. Listen to these words of Jesus. This is contained in his most famous sermon he ever preached, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And he said this, you have, set, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, they heard that. That's one of the big Ten Commandments, right? You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying it's not just enough to avoid the act of sexual morality Physically. What he's aiming at is that you avoid it in your heart. And so he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Now, my friends, listen to me very closely. Because I feel like there's been so much bad teaching on the issue of lust. That it enslaves people unnecessarily. To notice that someone is beautiful is not lust. To find someone, a man or woman, attractive is not lust. But what is lust depends on what you do with that. Notice what Jesus says. He's after a particular kind of looking. Someone who looks at another with lustful intent. In other words, they use the body they've been given and the eyes and the mind to take another person to strip them of their God-given dignity and to reduce them to an object that exists solely for their own pleasure. That's what Jesus is after here. There is much beauty in this world. But noticing the beauty is not lust. Lust happens when something inside you says, I want that, I need that, I have to have that, I will take that. Jesus elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, for example, chapter 7, says this. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. These are things, Jesus said, are not existing outside of us that defile us, but they come from within. So let me put it this way. No one in this world makes you lust. Lust happens when you see something that you want and you look with lustful intent. My friends, you and I both are 100% responsible for our thoughts when we look at other people. Do we look at them as an object? Or do we look at them as as a sacred person created in the image of God? Paul uh, would give some instructions to his uh, young protege in the faith named Timothy. And this is what he said. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. In all purity. In other words, he's telling Timothy, in these churches that you are overseeing, strive to help people see one another with dignity. Older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters, older men as fathers, in all purity. So let me ask you a question. It's not a trick question. But it's an important question, nevertheless. Do you want to be free from lust? Someone says, is that even possible? I'm not asking if you want to be free from temptation. You will have temptation in this world. The question is, is do you want to be free from lust? The reason I'm asking you that, because just in my experience talking with people, a lot of times Christians will say, I I hate lust but I also don't want to be free from it. This was the testimony of Augustine, who wrote in his confessions this prayer to God. Give me chastity and self-restraint, but not yet. He knew the way of Jesus, and he was drawn to the way of Jesus. He knew that he needed strength from Jesus to follow him, but he didn't want it yet. There's this amazing book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And it's it's really about the separation of heaven and hell. And the best way to think about this is as a dream. And the book opens up with C.S. Lewis finding himself on the outskirts of hell at a bus stop. And he's in this place where everyone hates each other and they can't stand to be close to one another. But they're getting on a bus. And this bus is going to take them to the outskirts of heaven. Now, he's not saying this actually happens. He's just saying suppose. This is like a dream. And these these people go on the trip to heaven and on the outskirts of heaven all these beings come out from heaven both angelic beings and people who live in heaven now and all these people encourage folks to enter in and there's this one fellow who has this red lizard on his shoulder and this red lizard is his lust and this angel comes out to him and says You can enter into the presence of God, but you can't take that with you. And the angel says, you want me to kill it. And this man is like, well, we don't have to make such drastic measures here. We don't have to talk crazy like that. And the angel says, well, no one can enter into the presence of heaven with a lizard on their shoulder like that. You want me to kill it. And he just stammers and stammers. He's like, Well, you know, I don't think that we should, should be so violent. And, you know, maybe I can think about this and maybe we can come back and have another conversation. And he says, Don't delay. Do you want me to kill it? And he says, to, I, You can't kill it. If you kill it, you'll kill me. And the angel says, No, I won't kill you. But suppose that it does happen. Suppose in the process of me killing this lizard, it kills you. Will that be so bad? And this man has a moment of Of an epiphany where he realizes he doesn't have to be with this lizard (laughs) even if it kills him to kill this lizard of lust that means he'll be freed from it and so he says yes and the angel takes that red lizard rips its neck throws it down on the ground and this man experiences freedom for the first time in his life and that that dead lizard all of a sudden begins to transform into this glorious white stallion with a gold mane and tail And this man, in excitement, jumps up onto the stallion and runs into heaven, or races into heaven on top of it. And in the wake of that conversation, the angel said to C.S. Lewis, watching, lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. That's in essence what Paul is telling these Thessalonian believers. He wants them to abound in love, but they got to put to death sexual morality. So let me tell you this, my friends. It is possible to live without lust. Just like it's possible to live without hate. And just like it's possible to live without gossip. It is possible to live without lust. Again, hear me closely. I'm not saying it's possible to live without temptation. You will be tempted in this world. Even Jesus was tempted in this world. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That means Jesus was tempted to lust, but he didn't lust. You will be tempted in this world, but the question is, is do you want to live without lust? It is possible. To live without lust. And I need you to hear this because, for many years, because of the bad teaching I got, both from our culture and in the church, I just thought lust was something that is going to be here with me till the day I die. And what I began to see is temptation will be with me till the day that I die, but lust doesn't have to be. I can choose to say no to it by the power of the gospel at work within me, the power of God's spirit. So, Paul tells People, words like this, (laughs) put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you serve a new master. His name is Jesus, and you are freed from that evil master of lust. Here's one more point of application. I know I'm going a little bit long, but stick with me. Let's fight desire with desire. Let's fight desire with desire. What I have in mind here is that we may find desires at work within us, and we have to say no to those, but Just saying no sometimes is enough. We need a greater desire, a greater pleasure at work within us to battle that desire. Thomas Chalmers once put it like this. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. That's why Paul told these Thessalonians, the gospel is at work in you. It has come to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What does that gospel do? It highlights Jesus for you and shows you that he is infinitely more valuable than anything you could put your eyes upon in this world. When Augustine finally got to that point where he was done with sin and wanted his Savior, he said this, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. My friends, if you want to battle well against the temptations that you encounter in this world, Jesus has to become sweeter to you than anything else, sweeter than life itself. And so Ashley Madison was right. Life is short but they were deadly wrong about the implications of that. Life is short, and eternity is long. Mercy Hill Church, may you live to please God, the one who is sweeter than all pleasure. He is infinitely worth it.